Hi, good morning. My name is the Reverend Janai Rossig. I'm with Congregational Church of Hookset, but many of you probably know me as the spouse of your pastor, Reverend Sarah Rossig, who is away to um, be with her mother that's in a, in a rather difficult, uh, difficult situation in her health. So will you pray with me this morning as we begin? God of grace, help us to be the church you called us to be. Help us to be the people who strive for justice, for equality, for loving our neighbor and the earth, so that all can experience the abundance of God's love. Amen. I'd like to first give thanks for the Holy Spirit to open my heart and take in what is needed to share today. There are many resources of all varieties and even across time itself that go into a sermon. I give thanks to God for the witnesses of the gospel and their willingness to share their insights and wisdom. I can preach today because others gave their witness to help inspire mine. I used to go hiking in the mountains on the edge of North Carolina and Virginia near Boone, Boone, North Carolina, at my uncle's place. There was a waterfall area we used to hike um, to go fishing for mountain trout, brownies, that is. Sometimes I didn't fish. I'd just go and watch the fish, knowing that some of them were just too big to make it downstream. I tell you, if word ever got out about the size of trout in this little hidden pond up on the mountainside, they would have most likely been poached off of my uncle's land. It seems to be, though, that these monster trout were just preparing to die regardless. I know a few things about mountain trout. A brown trout is a great deal like a salmon, where it travels great distances down streams and rivers and often returns to those streams to spawn and start the new cycle. After spending a year or two out in big lakes and even some species into the ocean, they swim back to the streams and rivers of their origin and prepare to spawn. Brown trout may live for 20 years or more, and the males usually die after they spawn and from their death comes new life. Now, the story story today is set six days before Jesus was going to die. How would you feel if you knew for sure that you were going to die this coming Saturday, six days from now? Now, if you knew that you were going to die this Saturday, I think you'd be a bit preoccupied with death, wouldn't you? Perhaps distracted and philosophical about it. And that is what Jesus is doing in this passage today. Thinking and contemplating because death is coming in only a few days. The story today is set in Jerusalem. It's Passover and there are hundreds of thousands gathered in the city. In this wild mass of humanity, there were a couple of Greeks in the crowd that came to the disciples and wanted to talk with Jesus. These Greeks had listened into the conversation of the disciples and they heard Philip from Bethsaida with a Greek accent. Now, Bethsaida Bethsaida was a Greek-speaking city in Israel. These travelers thought, hey, that guy speaks Greek. He's one of us. So they approached Philip and asked in Greek, can we see Jesus? Now, remember that the Gospel of John is all about the metaphors of light and dark, seeing and illumination. Philip went to Andrew, and the two of them went to Jesus and said, There are two Greeks who want to see you. You kind of can't see my air quotes here, but 
listen for them. In other words, they want to understand more. It seems that Jesus was distracted, preoccupied, didn't answer them directly. Instead, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will remain a single seed. But if it dies, it will will produce many grains of wheat. For whoever will find his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will find it. If anyone would serve me, they must follow me. They must follow me in death. So, okay, let's be honest. It's a weird response. And yet, maybe there's a connection. What if to see Jesus, meaning to understand his teachings, is to know the importance of dying in order to live? Jesus says, if a seed is planted into the ground and it does not die, it remains a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds and seedlings, and those seeds and their seedlings produce much fruit. So now, in preparation for today, I wanted to find out precisely what happens to seeds when they're planted into the ground. I mean, the focus of the text today is on the seed that dies, and so I called a seed company that I've dealt with for many years out of Michigan. This seed company knows all about seeds, so I telephoned them saying, Hi, I'm Reverend Janai Rossig from the Congregational Church of Hookset in New Hampshire, and I'm working on this sermon about seeds, and you folks are experts on seeds. Now, for some context, there's a Bible passage where Jesus says that when a seed dies, it bears much fruit. Can you tell me what happens to a seed when it's planted, that is, when it dies? And the nice lady on the other end of the telephone line said, after a really awkward pause, Well, that is one of the more interesting questions that we've received. I tell you what, how about I have our company president talk with you? He's our boss. He's my boss. Okay, so the boss gets on the phone and I say to the boss, Hi, my name is Reverend Janai Rossig and I bought a lot of seeds from you and I'm preaching a sermon about seeds. And basically there's this passage where Jesus said that unless a seed dies, it remains only one seed. But when a seed dies, it bears many seeds. Can you tell me what happens when a seed dies? And the boss says, It seems that question is more philosophical than biological, and I'm more comfortable in explaining the biological. The way I have it figured is that in every seed, there's a part of a cell filled with chlorophyll, and all seeds have some chlorophyll in them, which is what causes them to live. Now, to be philosophical, I would equate the chlorophyll to the soul. Each type of seed has chlorophyll. Bean seed, bean chlorophyll, which would be like a bean soul. And if it's pepper chlorophyll, a pepper soul. Or a tomato chlorophyll, that would be a tomato soul. You you get my point. The thing is, is that I really don't know the answer to your question, so I guess I'd advise you to call one of the biology professors at Michigan State. (sighs) Okay, so I did. I spoke with several people until I found a PhD in plant physiology at the university and said the same thing to her as the others about the sermon and what Christ said about seed and finally asked, so can you tell me what happens when a seed dies? Now this professor finally had the right answer. She said that inside every seed is an embryo, and in that embryo is a root which goes down into the ground and a shoot that goes up to the sky. And inside that little embryo 
and this is really a miracle, is an on and off switch. When this little seed is planted in the ground for 40 days at 40 degrees, the switch goes on, unless it's too cold and the switch doesn't come on. But when the seed switch comes on, the seed takes in water. It begins to expand. The seed coat is broken. In other words, it ceases to be a seed at that point. And it begins to mature, and it produces sugar and protein. And then out of the little roots and the little shoots, and the shoots produce more seeds, which produce more fruit. And that's what happens when a seed dies, said the professor. Now, Jesus said, unless a seed dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds and then much fruit. There's a parallel between seeds and brown trout, really. In seeds and brown trout, death is necessary for new life. It even seems a fundamental law of life that in dying, one on one end for another to begin is important for living. So this is true as well for human psychology, human sociology, and relationships. It's a law of divine spirituality. St. Francis of Assisi knew this law well when he wrote his famous prayer for peace, saying, It is in giving that we receive, and it is in dying that we are born again. Okay, wait. So what all does this mean? What if I said, If your dying hasn't been good this week, neither has your living. And if you haven't been dying this past week, you haven't been living. See, in the Bible, Jesus talks about dying to self. And it means dying to selfishness, dying to the big I, the attitude that I'm going to live for me, for my life, for my wife, my family. It's the idea that the purpose of my life is my ideas for self-fulfillment and me experiencing all that life can give me and that I am the center of the universe that's mine and surrounding me. Frankly to me, this is an immature faith belief. It's a seed at 20 degrees. It's a trout stuck in a pool that's gotten too fat to swim out and mature and come back to spawn. This idea that I am the center of all things is what an infant believes because this is all they know. Unfortunately, Many people grow up and keep these beliefs that they're the center of the universe. And when we finally die to this self-centeredness, we begin to live. And it's not only for our childish self-centeredness that needs to die, but also our willingness to engage in behavior that pulls us away from loving God and our neighbors. Whatever it is that pulls us into believing that God is anything other than 100% for us, loving us, dare I say, it's sin. I know, I know. We really don't talk about these things in the UCC, but, well, I'm not always good at following, following the established protocol here or practices. Our sins... Our sins, meaning to shun and turn away from our neighbors and our earth... Our sins meaning that we believe that someone else is not just as valuable as us and that another doesn't have the right to love and live life too. Our sins meaning that when we deny, when we support others' denial, when we stand silent and unwilling to strive for justice and care for the poor, treat our earth with respect and offer compassion, well, these behaviors are truly sins.
And when our sinfulness dies, you see, we live. When our sinfulness dies, our earth lives. When our sinfulness, our selfishness dies, our neighbors and ourselves live healthier, better lives. So Jesus says that it is only in dying that we begin living. And then to be fair, each of us struggles with our own selfishness, with our unwillingness to be that forgiven, open, and available person for others. We all struggle with these things. Each of us has those times when we pull away and focus only on ourselves and we don't let God's love in, much less anybody else's. And that's why there's grace. God's and ours through God's love. Grace reminds us that there is a place to stop and change our ways. In other words, Grace reminds us that there's a new opportunity to die to our old ways and know that we have open arms of love waiting for us. Always. So I'll leave you with a riddle. What do a trout, a seed, and you and I have in common? Just like the travelers in the text today, if you know the answer to that riddle, you will see Jesus Amen. God's blessings always. And if you're hearing snoring, please know that our dogs sleep through our sermons. It's an unfortunate truth that we have to live with. Hopefully you don't. God's blessings. Thank you. Bye-bye.